Tonight's episode is sponsored by Verez Sarah Band and the Scream Original Motion Picture Soundtracks box set. As the latest installment of Scream lands in theaters, revisit the masterful scores from the horror franchise's first four films with the Scream Original Motion Picture Soundtracks box set. Available on four LPs or six CDs, each collection is housed in a unique jacket which folds out into Ghostface's mask. Speaking of the new film, the brand new score can also be ordered today on vinyl in a reflective mirror board jacket or on CD or digital formats. Own the musical legacy of Scream. Visit your favorite retailer or the shop label store directly at VerezSaraBand.com, where Colors of the Dark listeners can save 20% off for a limited time with the code SCREAM20. That is code SCREAM20 at checkout at the Verez Saraband store and be sure to pick up the Scream Original Motion Picture Soundtracks box set. Vinegar Syndrome's January lineup is fully revealed at last, featuring four exciting horror releases, including the fourth installment in their Forgotten Gialli collection, which gathers another trio of rare Italian murder mysteries on Blu-ray, including The Sister of Ursula, Arabella Black Angel, and The Killer is Still Among Us. Also, coming to 4K UHD and Blu-ray is the -the over-the-top zombie comedy Dead Heat, starring Treat Williams, Joe Piscopo, and Vincent Price. Plus, making their worldwide Blu-ray debuts are the action-filled and 80s slasher-esque rarity Curfew, plus the ultra-gory caveman and cannibals epic, Master of the World. Also be sure to check out their latest Vinegar Syndrome archive release, Resurrected from the Terma of Volts, Fortress of America, plus their latest Vinegar Syndrome picture titled The Scary of 61st, which I talked about last week and really liked, an outrageous and bloody social satire which is currently playing theaters across the country. Plus there's a new Picarama from the queen of exploitation cinema, Roberta Finley, and 11 new partner label titles. All of them are only available at www vinegarsyndrome.com Now, in their 18th year, Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Officially licensed collections include hit titles like John Carpenter's The Thing, The Evil Dead, Creepshow, Jaws, the Halloween franchise, and so many more. Now that the chill of winter is upon us, Fright Rags has got you covered, literally, with their brand new winter beanies. Choose from Jaws, an American Werewolf in London, Chucky, They Live, Halloween 3, and Creep Show. These custom knit hats will make you look cool while staying nice and warm. Each beanie is $25 and currently in stock and ready to ship. All are officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners can get 10% off when they use the code COLORS10 at checkout. Again, that is code COLORS10 at fright-rags.com. Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Puffy Hair Elric Kane. Wait, is that my new thing? Puffy it's hair. Your, it's puffy today. Okay. It's it's got of, like yeah, an so. eraser head thing going on. Pretty cool though. Yeah, you know that's that was always my thing. I always I always ended up looking like a razor head. I don't know what how that happened. I think it's <laughs> how, just I was wired for that movie. How's the first couple of weeks of school going for you? Uh, I'm not meant to um, be back at normal world yet. 
<laughs> I am just holding on to normal, getting back into normal life. Uh, but, you know, holding on. We, we're in person today, so being around lots of people again. Oh, wow. We're still online for one more week, which is, it's weird. Like, I'm still enjoying the element of teaching in sweatpants, but at the same time, I'm like, holy fuck, I've done this. When do I get to go back and just see people? But then again, I kind of looked at it as right now I'm seeing my students' full faces, which is kind of nice because yeah, I'm not going to see that again for the rest of the semester. Like I actually can see what they look like for the rest of the semester. I see eyeballs um, yeah. and that's it. So that's been kind of nice, but still got to open my first class with Suspiria. Like I always do my intro directing class. I always but it can't be the same that. on a computer screen. It isn't. And I'm like, turn your speakers up, y'all. Put your headphones on. Expand the screen. Don't you dare watch it on the tiny little viewer that's going to pop up. Like, make it big. Um, So it loses something because we have, like, full screens in the classroom, this beautiful surround sound. And, yeah, it it sucks that we have to share it like that. But Yeah, I was was talking to Ernie before you got on just feeling a little zoomed out. Like, I mean, obviously everyone feels this way. But, like, even with doing our shows, it's like, oh, I miss going somewhere and meeting up. Like that feeling of, oh, we went somewhere and we met some people and we did a thing. Instead, it's all just buttons and screens. But, you know. This is the most ridiculous thing. I drove to a dentist appointment in Silver Lake on Monday, which is just the lamest thing ever. But I was out of the house and I was on the other side of the mountain. And suddenly I was like, I am out. There's life. I should get lunch by myself. Maybe I'll go see a movie. And then by the time I got out of the dentist appointment, I had like 30 emails I had to go take care of. Um, But yeah, it just felt so good to leave the house momentarily. Yeah. Well, I, I did. I I can. I'll talk about it quickly up front because it does segue. I haven't been seeing many films for you know just while things are kind of surging. But I did get to see Scream um, because I I figured out a movie theater out here that like, no one goes to, and if it's during the day, like zero people go. I think it was the first screening of Scream, and I think there was one other person in the entire theater, uh, and so I felt completely safe. And I'm not going to talk about Scream because it's still too soon. Uh, but I will say I had a really good time. I thought it was it did the I think it did justice to the previous characters and the new characters. Um, I think Wes would have dug it like it was for Wes. I thought that was really mm-hmm. cool. It felt um, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it, actually, given that I'm not a big three or four fan, really. Um, and it's not like my ride or die franchise, even though I love the first one. So I don't want to I think the Radio Science guys did a really good job. It's a really smart movie. Um, and playful and so i'm excited for you to see it but i don't mm-hmm. want to say any more than that because anything you get into plot is gonna start ruining it for people so i won't do that to anyone luckily i have not seen people posting about it online and yeah, yeah i that was my I, concern that was my main concern is that there are some movies i'm just like i don't want that accidentally mm-hmm. ruined because that's a big part of those that franchise is the whodunit element i guess yeah um but it's fun it's a really fun movie so i'm really happy to see it do well and again horror kicked complete ass at the box oh office gosh. reminding people just what a great uh genre for making money it is yeah no i almost went to see it last weekend well with you um i was seriously debating because i'm still i'm going through that um indecision that i think much of la is right now of i really just want to go out and i have a feeling i'm going to get omicron at some point anyway like uh, you know is this just something that we're all going to get but at the same time i feel like i still have to safeguard 
then it's it's a weird place. Would you rather get at an awesome movie or from like asshole <laughs> guy at the supermarket who refused to wear his mask? You know, it's gonna be some go. shithead at Target that like pulls his mask down to cough, yeah. and that's gonna be the euphoric way I finally get Pick it. Pick your so. poison, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm gonna look at the release and see which movie is worth getting it for. I'll be like, oh yeah, I'd get it for that movie. Um, but yeah, no, it, it is weird though. Like it does mess with your head right now. So, but mm-hmm. you know, if you can see it, there's still a lot of quiet sessions. I swear. Like I think I'd only be concerned being in a packed theater right now, which I haven't done. So I can't. I don't. I can't bring myself to go back to like the AMC 16, which is definitely like my home theater, really close to my house in Burbank. But it's always packed, um, and so I'm I'm trying to negotiate that. I'm eventually going to have to do that because eventually I'm just going to want to go see shit. Popcorn's um, worth it. I know, I know. Oh God, I miss movie popcorn. <laughs> I miss movie popcorn and Junior Mints like combination. Yeah. Um, I will go back to the New Bev anytime though for some reason, which is weird. Mental that I'm like, I'll go there, but I won't go. I, it's just weird. Apparently, um, you don't want the frozen Junior Mints though. No, frozen. I was I, okay, very disappointed I, by that. Dig the frozen junior men sometimes, sometimes. But thus, this is a Patreon conversation we're having right now where I random sidebar into candy selections. But I will say in lieu of seeing Scream, I binged some crazy television this weekend. Um, And I'm going to kick it off with some Archive 81 because I know you watched it too. I I did not intend. I thought I was going to watch because I had heard about it too before you posted. And I was like, oh, I want to see that. And, but didn't know anything about it. And then I saw your post. I was like, all right. And then I, I watched maybe the first three. And then I was like, okay, damn it. I'm going to watch all of these before Monday, you know, Tuesday. So I did. I, I watched all of it. So so did I. Um, no, like last night I did um, the last two episodes back to back. So for those of you guys this who have not experienced Archive 81, um, this has become kind of a, a cultural phenomenon. I don't want to say that it's as big as something as um, that we were seeing earlier in the, oh gosh, the na- games. Frick, Midnight where's Man? my brain tonight? No. The- oh, Squid Games, yeah. Squid Games, thank you. I was like, bunny game? No, that's definitely not it. Um, Squid Game, it, I don't think it's quite as huge as that, um, but it was number one all weekend, and I have been seeing so many people talk about Archive 81 online and just the how much uh, kind of enthrall and just the engagement that it's had of people watching one episode and then saying, fuck, I'm in for all eight now because it does such a, set up such a brilliant mystery. Which is, which is actually pretty impressive because I would call this, um, I mean, this is very much my kind of horror, which is like fairly esoteric at the start. Mm-hmm. Like the yep. first few episodes are actually pretty mysterious, pretty esoteric, pretty uh, retro in their interests and stuff. And so for me, that fact that this was popular is kind of a great sign because mm-hmm. it gets I think it gets a bit more as the series goes I felt it to get more mainstream and I felt like the last two episodes were very broad compared to the rest of the series yeah I had um I loved the first seven episodes like just thought they were brilliant even yeah. and we're not gonna we'll give you the setup of it is it is a guy who has been hired to um, re-finish, to kind of recover these videotapes that were burned up in a fire that happened in an apartment building in 1994. And he's a film archivist. He works at an archive and does all that kind of stuff. And so he's hired to um, take the tapes apart and restore them and, and deal with the melted footage and kind of restore everything that's on them and digitize it. And he's hired by a weird company that doesn't seem to have much history, but they're paying him a ton. 
And so and that's Martin Donovan of- from every Hal Hartley film is the yes. <laughs> I was like, ooh, it's that's very nineties as well, actually. And Casting Martin Donovan as the bad guy or whatever he, he is. is yeah. Great in it. Um but that's kind of the setup. And then it starts bouncing back and forth between what he is seeing on the tapes, what he is restoring, and then what he is experiencing in his own world as he is restoring the tapes. And it sets up a mystery within that. Um that's all we'll say. For the first seven episodes, I was completely in. But there was very little explained in those first seven episodes. We were just getting little breadcrumbs of what's going on. And I think that's what kept me going. The eight episode, it's like somebody just said, let's put all the pipe here. And then it really just explained everything all in one episode. So that kind of, I was a little put off by the eighth episode. But yeah, that like, said, I still loved the series. Yeah, as a whole story, I still really enjoyed it. But there, I can't remember if it's the, no, I think it was the one before the eighth that, and I don't want to give things away, but it was like, like dealing with period a bit. Yeah, that was the and, seventh episode. Yeah, there's something about that sometimes in shows that feels cheap. It feels not as technically interesting as all the other. The other stuff, it's such a well-made show. Like I was, uh, I remember watching the third episode, which is by Benson Moorhead. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good. But then the fourth episode comes on. It's like one of the best hours of anything I've seen this year is the one they mm-hmm. drew, their second episode. It's killer because it's like scary. I mean, it's actually it's disturbing. It's got creepy. so many scares in it. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really good. And and so it's either way, I'm all in for the series. Really happy. I think it's a really, I love the lead. He's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, it's like sometimes these things get a little bit and maybe and feel a little bit more general, but it's still really cool and couldn't recommend it enough. Yeah, and I do have to say that this is, it stuck with me. Like a lot of times, something like Yellow Jackets, I watch it and I know I want to keep going, but in between the episodes, I'm not like lusting for it. I'm not hungering after it. With this one, I found myself like middle of the day after watching two episodes where I was like, I wonder if I could just throw it on real quick. Like I really wanted to see where it was going. It was like a book I wanted to just- Well, I, For you, it's like, it reminds me of a lot of the docu-series that you get hooked on. They, are often oh, yeah. have, they often have mysteries and a little bit of breadcrumbs at the end, so you keep watching. I felt like this is the structure of this show. Like it makes you need to solve it. It is. Whereas Yellow Jackets is more about you can have lots of theories, but it's I don't think it needs to be binged. And but speaking of which, yeah, Yellow Jackets Yellow also Jacket. wrapped. So I didn't get the last episode. Okay, yes, okay. so I don't don't spoilers. But all I'll say is a kill. It's just great. The whole show. It doesn't feel like there's nothing. I don't feel like there's any big. Oh, actually, no. There's some a couple uh, big reveals that will come by the end. But either way, it left me just like this. Really is a great show. And best of all for you. You you still got it right because I don't think you you won't be disappointed by the end and it won't you won't recant your number one pick. So I loved it. That was my baller move of 2021, where all, with only having seen five episodes, I put Yellow Jackets as my number one of the year. So yeah. um, I'm hoping to God it maintains that. Um, I was dreading that it would like take a turn. Um, yeah, it's either it baller or making like, decisions yeah. without all the facts. You know. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> It's called uninformed move, but you know, it's still a baller. I I looked at it as at the moment when I was making that list, capping 2021, what was the best thing I had seen in 2021? And it was the first five episodes of Yellow Jackets. Um, So even without the rest of the show, it was still the best thing I'd watched in 2021 for me. Yeah, I don't even really disagree. I'd put it right up there. Like Midnight Mass was my number one and 
that still holds up emotionally as my number one, but I got to say Yellow Jackets is way more my bag. Like it's, it ties in with my exact year of being in high school, my exact like age range. It's all the same interest, same music. So this show is easily my favorite show going right yeah. now. So Definitely. very excited that there will be another season. It's always good news. So yay, TV. See where it goes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a movie that I forgot to talk about last time, which was really stupid because it was a big release we were kind of waiting to discuss. Um, and that was Antlers because Antlers was the mm-hmm. one movie we weren't able to put on either of our top tens because we hadn't seen it in that year. Um, and I finally got around to seeing it right before our last show and then just somehow <laughs> totally forgot. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting film. It's really nicely made by Scott Cooper. It's a Nick Antosca screenplay. It's a, you know, it's kind of like taking a Native American Wendigo myth. It's quite a little bit different from that and placing it in this Oregon town where these kind of meth dealers are in this kind of dark, um, kind of cavernous space cooking and something comes out and like takes them over. And I think it kind of starts to grow inside of them. Um, and it's almost like taking you over almost like a long-term possession and eventually it will become this creature. Um, and some of it feels really clipped. It feels like it moves way too fast. Um, dramatically for what it is. It's it's kind mm-hmm. of odd like that. Um, but it has Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons. Carrie Russell's a school teacher. Her brother, Jesse Plemons, is the sheriff. That stuff's fine. I, I will feel, and I'm not that sensitive always about like, oh, I don't know if this is your story to tell, but I can't help but feel that this was very much a native story not being told by native voices. And, and you, you kind of did feel the lack of that. Like, I really felt... It's rare that I walk out of movies like this. Usually I'm pretty fine at just going, yeah, it's just fun. This time I kept going, wait, there needed to be way more about the myth. And um, they bring in Graham Greene, who's an excellent actor, to play like the ex-sheriff. And he's like the native actor who comes in and kind of explains a little bit of the backstory. But it feels pretty shoehorned in. Like, So Mm -hmm. you're like, okay. Now, the reason I'm bringing him up is he's also in a movie we just talked about on our Patreon that I want to really recommend here, even though I'm, I already talked about it there, which is Clear Cut, which is the movie um, that just was part of the, um, uh, what is it? Dark Days, Dark Bewitched, uh, yeah. Woodland Days and Dark Woodlands Bewitched. and Darks, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kayla's documentary, this was one that everyone talked about as being a real the real find of the set, and it is Woodlands, on Shutter. Woodlands, Dark, and Days Bewitched. Days Bewitched, yeah. that properly. Uh, and they mentioned Clear Cut, and so Graham Greene is in both. It would make for a great double feature if you watch Ant- Rent Antlers, because then you'll see him young, and he's just, he's scarier than the monster in Antlers in Clear Cut. He's an incredible performance in that film. But uh, the actual, when when Antlers goes like straight monster movie, which is about, there's about 20 minutes towards the end. It's actually really fun. That part mm-hmm. is, it reminds me of something like The Relic, where it's just going balls to the wall in that way that I I really appreciated. So I'm definitely mixed on it, but it's very watchable because everyone who made this is talented. It's like a good team. It looks great. I just, it almost feels like it's just a little, it feels like bits are missing. I don't know if they really are. And that was my only real complaint there. And a little less, I would have just loved a little more myth. There's a couple images that I think you'd really dig in terms of creature design and kind of like the how it becomes this version of a Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I would still definitely recommend it to everyone who would be listening here. Um, I don't think it still would have, it still would have just missed out on my 10. Um, but definitely worth seeing and watch that one clear cut. I really just can't say enough good things about that movie, which is on Shutter. Nice. Um, so I basically lived on Netflix this weekend, so I continued watching stuff there after I finished Archive 81. Um, I'd actually watched the Netflix film The Swarm a couple of weeks mm. ago and completely forgot to talk about it. So I at least wanted to give it a shout out because I rather enjoyed that one. 
about a mom who um, breeds locusts and is having financial problems. Her kids are kind of humiliated at school about the fact that mom breeds locusts for a living and finds that her locusts breed exceptionally better if they eat blood. Um, and then kind of goes exactly where you think it's going to go. Is this French um, or something? This it is. It, okay. it, I think it is. Yeah. I'm, it's definitely foreign. I want to say French. Okay. Yeah. I, I almost so, watched it once. Yeah. I thought it was. Yeah. Like- and it's, and I'll just mention it briefly because the story isn't much more than that, but it is fascinating. And I loved it because it was daytime horror. It's literally like, you know, the setting of reflecting skin with oh, yeah, locusts cool. and, oh, cool. I'll watch that. you know, bodies and things like that. So that one was actually um, fairly interesting. But the one that I watched this week specifically, um, which should have been my jam and was to a degree, is The Bar. Um, the Bar is 2017. And this is an Alex de la Iglesia film that I'd never seen and never even heard of before. Never even heard that title. Until, yeah, it popped up on my recommendations, um, a Spanish name, El Bar. And then I clicked on it. I was like, Alex de la Iglesia. Okay, well, I'm watching this tonight. The setup is sounds like the perfect movie for me, like exactly what I would love in a movie where a group of people, it's an ensemble cast from all different walks of life are in this very um, frenetic restaurant, kind of shady bar, but it serves breakfast. Think like cafe that also has booze um, bright and early in the morning one day. And they're all completely different people. One girl is there because she's supposed to be meeting a guy that she's going on a date with. Um, there's a, a homeless man in there. There's a woman who's there to use this gambling lottery machine. There's the cook. There's the woman who runs it, who is the same as the head witch from Witching and Bitching. Um, and so all there's probably, there's a businessman. There's a guy who's like writing a screenplay. So you get like nine, eight different people from all different walks of life. All of a sudden, some person walks out of the cafe and leaves and gets shot right as he is leaving the cafe, like headshot from a sniper. Everybody's like, oh my God, what happened? One other patron runs out after him and immediately gets shot as well. And they then realize that anytime one of them leaves the bar, they immediately get shot. And so then <laughs> it kind of becomes, fun, yeah. yeah, it's a like phone booth. Set. It's phone booth, but in a bar or whatever. It's phone booth in a bar. Yeah. That's it exactly. And so then it becomes them trying to figure out who's out there shooting. Is this a deranged sniper? What's going on? And what I loved about this is it's first off trying to figure out why the person would be doing this. Is it just a random shooting? But the course that they follow felt natural to me where the first thing they do is, you know, pull out their phones and try to text people. And then they're turning on the television to see if they can get news and let's check the internet Um, and going through patterns like that without giving much away about what the twist is and what's actually going on. Because it does have a really cool twist to it. Um, and I, I will say it's got kind of strong pandemic vibes. Like this was made before the pandemic. And as soon as you find out kind of what's going on, you're like, fuck, this is, it's hmm. felt almost kind of foretelling to a degree without giving much more than that. But where it goes in the third act is vastly different. The first and the second act definitely function more like a horror comedy. There's a lot of comedy behind it. It feels very much Alec de la Iglesia, where it's very kind of over the top. There's a lot of kind of audacity in it. You can't believe that it's going certain places. It feels 
wild and kind of unchained um, and fun, yet it's still kind of, a, it's got like a fun horror comedy vibe to it. The third act turns into a very gritty, gross kind of torture film. And so it lost me a little in the third act. But that said, if you are a De La Iglesia fan, this is kind of a must see because it also feels different. I'm used to his films being huge. Um, They always are these massive set pieces with wild and crazy stuff happening. This is very contained. It's very much like his version of like a saw or a cube. Um, And so to see it stay so contained in this one location with eight people and how he kind of navigated that is interesting. Um, So yeah, this is on Netflix now um, called The Bar. Okay. Uh, the only other f- new film I saw, and this this is actually probably the first new. Oh, Scream! Scream! And this are the first two new films of twenty twenty two that are actually twenty twenty two films. Um, this is called See for Me, uh, directed by Randall Okita. I believe it's Canadian. Um, pretty pretty interesting movie. Very well made. Very slick thriller. Uh, kind of reminded me a bit of that movie on Hulu last year called Run, where it was the mm-hmm. person in the wheelchair and her mom. Uh, so this is about a uh, blind former ski champion who's only like, you know, 19 or whatever, she had an accident and had lost her vision. And she, like, she basically, like, house sits places for extra money, but has actually been, like, stealing, like, she'll steal a bottle of really expensive wine when she leaves the place and sell it on eBay to make extra money. So she's kind of a bit of a rebel on that side. She, when it opens, she is going to this, you know, big kind of almost ski lodge type place that she's going to look after. And uh, she gets there and she uses an app. She uses various apps to help her kind of get a lay of the land. And she has a friend who kind of walks her through what she's seeing and helps her with the layout so she can get, uh, get by. But um, what, what her mom sends her this brand new app called see for me. I think that's, what it's called and it's somebody like in a call center who you can call if there's something a problem like for instance at one point she uh goes outside of this new place that she's only been a couple times and loses the key and she needs to get back into the place and she obviously can't see enough to be able to figure out where she is so she calls somebody and they pick up the phone and uh they can see what she sees through her phone and describe what to do so you know kind of a high concept um app type type thing it becomes a home invasion film where people are trying to get something from the safe, you know, massive thugs. And she, of course, scared out of her mind, ends up having to uh, survive by calling the app. And it's this armed forces, uh, ex-armed forces woman who, you know, helps her through. And they make an awesome team. So on that level, it's really fun, the back and forth between wow. them. Uh, the one thing about it that makes the whole film, to me, just super interesting is um, the actress who plays the lead character, Skylar Devonport, and she's legally blind. So it really changes, you know, how you feel about because what you're watching is a performance, sure, but she's also going through some of the things that the central character would be going through, and it made for I don't know, it just created a really interesting tension, something I hadn't really seen before, um, in the, especially in a movie quite like this that was really mm-hmm. like an action thriller. I mean, it's like we're used to Audrey Hepburn and people like that playing uh, people who would be playing characters who are blind. So I thought that was super interesting, and I think even you know, with without that aside, it's still a well made movie so um just cool it was cool to see casting uh actually open up like that somebody bringing their real experience to the role so i am so hoping that we see that as a new trend um that we're at and and i see it pop up on casting sites now more than i used to that we are looking for an actor or actress who specifically has this like um you know for me since my son has asperger's i'm always like anytime i see 
any type of person playing a character with autism, I'm like, you know, you know, there's some really good autistic actors out there that you should really be thinking about. And so I'm hoping that we can really in the future bring more agencies to roles like that. You want things right. like this will probably be, a, it, it'll, these are how you break those ceilings, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause this is a big action thriller. It's that's not what you would, you, you would think you can only imagine as a filmmaker, how hard films are to make anyway, that it's all going to, everything has problems that have to be solved, but these are good problems probably. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought, yeah, I thought it was a really, actually a really slick, well-made movie. It doesn't reinvent in terms of the plot. It doesn't, n- nothing's being reinvented that you haven't seen in Hush or something like that, but I did, it did hold my interest. So that's C for me. Nice. And I will round us out with my graphic novel reads for this week. So I read two and I'm going to start with a YA horror. I've been doing a couple of side projects in YA horror. So I have been literally binging YA horror, not just graphic novels. I've been reading tons of YA horror books um, and and just all types of YA horror media, which has been really fun. I got to say like YA horror from when I was a teen, I always thought like Christopher Pike and things like that. I never even connected until I started revisiting again that YA horror doesn't pull any punches. Like it's still stabbings and death Mm. and, you know, you're still fighting mass murders. It's, it's like what I would have associated with, with like Christopher Pike, Fear Street, things like that. Um, And so being able to read it again and go, oh my gosh, this is racy or this is sleazy has been a blast. Um, This one is not that. This one is just a straight up front fun graphic novel. This is the Backstagers from Boom Comics. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend this. I'd say that this may be even younger. Um, I would put this in about eight to probably around 14 range, maybe even a little bit older. I think I would have read this when I was a teenager. I mean, I'm I'm still reading it now, Um, but I definitely handed it to my nine-year-old daughter and was like, you're going to like this. The setup is that it's a boys' school. And this kid is starting there and doesn't really fit in and feels like he's just an outcast and doesn't have any friends. And he wanders into theater club and quickly finds himself backstage and discovers that he really likes being part of the backstage crew, that he loves theater, but that he loves the backstage crew more than anything. And then he discovers that underneath the stage are these tunnels And the tunnels rearrange themselves constantly and they all lead to these different fantasy, horror, and monster realms. Hmm. And that it is the backstage crew's job to maintain these tunnels and make sure that the monsters don't find their way out and, you know, come into the school and things like that. Um, It is so fun. It is, if you have like a theater kid, this is the perfect book to give them. I wish I had something like this when I was like a 14 year old theater nerd, really strong LGBTQ vibes as well. Um, Not even vibes. It's like built into the story. It just is, which is beautiful to read. Um, And so that one was really fun. The thing that I found probably the coolest about it is that the monsters and the actual realms in the story are largely made out of theater gack like bridges constructed out of old sets or the monsters made out of like stage lights like it was really cool concept in that capacity um the other one that i read definitely way more adult and that is manor black this is from dark horse and this is our old friend colin bunn along with brian hurt and this is 
just beautifully original horror. I'd never read a story like this. Like, I really hope this gets a conversion into a TV show in some capacity because it feels like a massive world that you could really do this with. The setup is this old Southern wealthy bougie family um, are infighting for who gets control of magic. You find out that their family magic exists and their family controls it. And the the patriarch of the family, the dad is dying and he knows he is dying and he has to bequeath the gift of magic and pass it on to one of his kids. Hmm. But they're all kind of jerks and fighting back and forth and he doesn't know who to give it to um, because the magic has to be controlled and it can't be exploited. All the kids suck. And then through this course of events, he meets this one girl, this outcast kid who is in no way affiliated with her family. She doesn't have a family. She's kind of a, a living on the streets. And he takes the shine to her. And she is uh, strong enough to hold the magic. And she has magic of her own. But it pisses off his kids who now see this as a thing that they need to avenge. Like they need to fight to get the magic back. And they're worried that dad is going to give the magic capabilities to this girl who is, um, you know, street urchin and not even part of the family. That sounds like knives out, but with magic. Right? It is. And it's got small town cops too. Hmm. Um, and then at the same time, the the kind of villain of it is this, um, I'll call it like a guerrilla group who believes that magic should be free. That magic should not be held by, you know, the 1%. That magic should be available to everybody to use. But with that, they're committing crimes and becoming evil in the process of trying to free the magic. And so the biggest thing that I took away from this is that it's it's all social dynamics, um, but with magic and how the magic's being controlled and and who's trying to keep control of it and things like that. And the fascinating thing about it was when you step back and look at it, there is not a necessary good and evil. It's just opposing viewpoints, but every single one of the characters has good intentions from their own perspective. It's just all perceived differently. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fascinating in that capacity because it made me step back and kind of look at all of the perspectives that go into this. And um, yeah, so big social class statement, a lot of kind of money control system, a lot of statements on the 1%. And how everything is controlled, society, power, class, systems, everything, all set in the vein of horror and magic. So, Which also reminds me a little bit of Cast a Deadly Spell. It has notes of it because it's also, it's very kind of this Southern Gothic. The whole yeah. thing is this real Southern Gothic with the magic kind of, it just exists in mm. this space. But it's controlled by the the 1%. Um, so yeah, it was a real fascinating read, Manor Black. I read the first volume, which was um, the first collected of uh, the the individual comics, and I believe there is a second one that I now have to pick up. So cool. yeah, that was the Backstagers Rebel Without Applause, and then the second one was Manor Black. All right. Excellent. Okay, let's take a break here from our sponsors, and we will be back with a trip to the nineties. Here's something fresh and new, introducing Frank Einstein, a CGI graphic novel comic book by Lorenzo West of West Comics. Sword, sorcery, and sci-fi tech during the Roman Empire. Available at substack.com. That's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. That's Frank Einstein from West Comics on substack.com. Enjoy the continuing weekly postings, now including Robot Romance, a sci-fi series. 
Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we are back and we are going to dive into the 90s, specifically the film Ticks. Yes, we're going to dedicate the entire second half of the episode to Ticks. Now, Elric, um, which one of the marijuana growers did you most emotionally connect with? That what's actually disturbing me about you, your jest here, is that this makes me think it won't be on your list, which is utterly <laughs> unfathomable to me. Uh, so I'm a little, I'm already shook, and we haven't even gotten in here. So look, we're going to do our top ten of the '90s, but let's just make sure people understand that does not mean the best ten movies of the '90s. Nope. <laughs> I got a few that would make sense that way, but uh, the rest, it's all personal to me and things I love. Um, it's definitely tailored that way, and I'm sure yours is too. Yep. At the end, we can talk about a couple classics, you know, uh, that aren't necessarily on this kind of a list, but would obviously be in there. And in 90s, you also might be, you know, after our big scream episode last uh, two weeks ago, uh, one of one of the few rules we instantly said is, okay, let's just exclude scream because we we both know it's you know one of the top couple movies of that decade, but we just talked about it to death, and we talked about a lot of offshoots of it, and some people who love that part of the 90s might be disappointed in my list because that is not really the kind of movies that made me Mm -hmm. these are all movies that had some sort of impact on me personally along the way what about you no mine are the same um and thank you for the warning because yeah i don't look at this list and go these are the best made movies that changed horror history of the 90s like if you were asking me for a list of 90s horror canon films this is not it 
Um, yeah, there might be some. There's going to be some yeah. for sure that will double, but but it's you know that's easy. Any anyone can do that. We what we do in horror and what's important about even having podcasts or shows is to be as personal as you can be about your stuff you love. Mm-hmm. And and usually, if I hear from people thanking me for saying it's always because it was something I love, not just something that's great. You know, objectively great doesn't really you know matter. You know what I found so amusing about this list? Not even amusing. It was hard as fuck. Mm. With the 80s, I had no problem whittling down like to like 15 films. And in the 80s, we did three different episodes. We did American non-sequels. We did sequels (laughs) or franchises. And then we did international. So this was a lot. This is all in one list of 10. But it's the weird thing of, um, and I know we're the same age. I always think that the eighties were the movies that made me that that's like where, you know, I was like seven and eight discovering these films. And then once I started looking at the nineties, this hit like middle school into like my teen years. And that's where I was like, holy shit. Like I now am looking at it as this is where all my horror formations happened. Like 80s was, you know, tantalizing and definitely kind of got me into it. But like when I'm thinking about like why I like the films I like, it was all 1990s films. Yeah, well, I'd say, yeah, the only thing I would say is it's late 80s. So if it was 88, like you're right, like early 80s, obviously we were too young, like we were watching this Mm -hmm. stuff later than when it came out. But if it was like 88, 89, then I would have, it would have, I'd say 88 to, to 96 probably is the most definitive mm-hmm. period. Like if, you yeah. know, if I was just thinking about my, I'm probably similar to you, but yeah, no, there were some of these are super significant in terms of when I saw them. Uh, the other, right before we started doing this, I did, I told Beck and she followed the rule, even though she didn't need to, but I, I said, I'm also making the rule of no David Lynch films for myself because he is my favorite director and he has, I would uh, I'd probably have Lost Highway at number one. And Fire I would Walk have with Lost me. Highway on here. As yeah. Well. Fire Walk With Me, having rewatched it recently, that has like really shot up as a horror, kind of a horror movie in my mind. Whereas when I was young, I didn't fully get it. I actually saw it before I saw the series at one point. So it didn't really work. But um, so I'm going to omit those because they are also aren't really straight horror films. Anyway, they are a mix and I'm wearing a Twin Peaks t-shirt right now. So obviously that's loaded too. Uh, so yeah, so we're, that, those are only rules though. Otherwise, you know, sequels, international, franchise, whatever, anything goes. Um, so I'm very curious where we'll go. And as as always, uh, on any show I'm part of, uh, there is the Bromley Law, which is mm-hmm. if one of us posts a movie that the other one has higher, we just say higher and we wait. We say to higher talk about it and we wait. Um, it's the so, sexy yeah. Bromley rule. Sorry, we have to say sexy Bromley because he the likes sexy it when we say that. Bromley. <laughs> uh, please go listen to F This Movie, his podcast. Which is great. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so yeah, no scream, no David Lynch. And with that, shall we start? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, you go Number first 10. this time. Because I went okay. first uh, last time we did this. I think it was International 80s I went first. Okay, so my number 10 is David Lynch's Wild at Heart. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, no, Scream 2. Scream 2 is actually just as good as you know. Uh, Okay, my number 10 is... uh, No, this is real. Uh, My number 10 (laughs) is a movie that... I, I know people like, but I often hear it with caveats. Like, they're like, I like it, but I... But, you know, blah, 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 blah. And when I saw this movie... It was like, this would be in my top three in terms of like, er, when I saw it influences, like this movie kind of changed how I felt about horror in some ways, um, even though maybe it doesn't hold up quite to that level, but I love it. And that is Clive Barker's Nightbreed. This- Dude, it's my 10 as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's, uh, that's remarkable. That's, you know, well. mm-hmm. but see, I'm not on the camp. Like when the Cabal Cut stuff was all starting, I'll just say this because I, I, I like the Cabal Cut. Don't get me wrong, but 
I was not in a camp that thought there was anything wrong with the other version because because of when I saw it. I saw it at the age of I think thirteen or twelve. I might have been mm-hmm. twelve, and it blew me away. Like I loved the creatures. I loved the imagination. I loved that the that the monsters in this were like the good guys in quote marks, and and man was the monster. I thought mm-hmm. I knew who Cronenberg was, and here he was playing the creepiest co- doctor ever. Say it. Uh, he's got a gun. <laughs> You have to do the things with the hands. Hand motion. That's the best part. Uh, but it, it just, it really blew me away as a young person. And, and it's never really lost. I mean, I still love it in that same way. Um, and so it's it's a funny one to me. I remember there was like a video game that a lot of people don't talk for the IBM or something mm-hmm. that came out right before the movie came out for Nightbreed. And I was yeah. like, so so my imagination was already kind of spinning about these designed creatures um you know it goes back to the fact that i'll always bemoan there's just not enough clive parker directed horror films there's only three and i wish there was 10 you know because he's one of my favorite voices out there but yeah this one this one was just a big deal to me and i i'd be lying if i I didn't put it in a list like this yeah nightbreed this was one of those definitive films for me that i was probably 13 14 seeing this and it just it changed my life um where the creature effects Boone, the character of Boone, of constantly feeling like he doesn't belong, that he's hungry for this other place, this this town, and then kind of finding it. Um, this was just as influential on me as the Hellraisers were. And what's weird is I didn't even make the connection at upon first seeing it that this was Clive Barker. Um, it wasn't until I really started digging in and reading more of his stories that I was like, oh fuck, he wrote Nightbreed and Candyman. Like it's just you know. Suddenly, so much of the stuff that was really attracting me during this time period, all I realized was was coming out of this one individual. And and I knew I knew about it because of um, the quote on Stephen King's Stephen King's quote saying, "I've seen mm-hmm. the future of horror in Bar. Like that's all I knew about that name. That made me want to know what this was because. Yeah. And it just goes. I think it was on that Stephen King's World of Horror, or whatever that it was like a TV special. I remember seeing, and it just totally like you realize the strength, the importance of supporting fellow artists. Like yeah. like that one quote probably changed. Clive Barker's career um, at the time. And so, uh, yeah, no, this is a really special movie. And I can see if you didn't see it when you were young and you only watch it now, then maybe there'd be stuff you would bump with. But Mm -hmm. the design is so imaginative and radical and you know the guy the red creature i always think he's just like fuck the law that guy yeah. ugh, just i can i can see it in my head i can see his breath his i always teeth, liked you know? Moonface and, yeah, Moonface and great, yeah. um yeah the mother character the smoke character as well yeah. and that was part of what i found so tantalizing was it just had this assortment of creatures like everyone was different and ex- it respected that like there was the dude who'd cut his own face off and he yeah. was still cool to come hang out with the group um, it just had so much diversity and uniqueness and and really made weird little horror nerd me, you know, just it felt warm and fuzzy in a way. Yeah. Um, Imagine and- it. If that had been made now, how great a series that would have made. Like yeah. if made in today's world of like Showtime, the, each creature could have had a great backstory and you could have spent time getting them to Midian. And it, I, I could see a lot of uh, like legs in a Nightbreed series. If and there were. was an amazing comic book line that spun off um, from epics around the same time period. I want to say that it was also, um, I remember it being right around the same time that the movie would have come out Mm. when I was like 
you know, 13, 14. Um, and it was really good. They even did a Hellraiser versus Nightbreed that was really good that had um, Cenobites trying to create uh, order within the Nightbreed world. And it was really tight spinoff. So yeah. How do they I, explain I, Doug Bradley also playing the old guy in Nightbreed? He can't play both <laughs> roles. That's far well, too complicated. You know, in the comic, it's slightly easier, but yeah. Okay. Um, but that said, Nightbreed is something that, you know, and, and God forbid, you you know, you reboot something. I know that a lot of people have a knee jerk reaction for that, but I'm always one who is going to be kind of a, a fan of rebooting because it exposes people to something that they may not have previously seen. Like it's difficult for me to get my students, um, my 18 year old students to watch weird little esoteric film from 1990s that may not hold up as well as I remember it being. And they find kind of campy by today's standards. But I feel like there is a story there that could be prime for a reboot. Stop uh, showing your kids pinky films. <laughs> I know what you're doing at USC. It's like, well, this this go go second time virgins actually are very interesting. Okay, this week we're watching Angel Guts Red Porno, and um, which is not a porno. No, no, I actually, um, I think I have pinky films as I do a little mention of like subgenre, and Uh it's like a it's a little like notation there as a subgenre. And my students are always like, "What's a pinky film?" And I'm like, "Go Google it." Um, So yeah, all right, it comes out in the horror class a little bit, but that's. Said, I feel like Nightbreed is something that it could use an update, and I would love to see this. Much like Hellraiser's getting one, I would love to see this handled um, well in the hands of somebody who really appreciates it. Well, and I think I've told this story before, but of all the movies I've seen in my entire life, this was the one where when it ended, this is pre internet movie database, I literally waited for a couple of years waiting for the sequel because I've never seen a movie end with a clearer setup for the sequel, which is like the priest coming back. And then it just never happened. And I didn't understand that that could happen with movies. I just thought if, if there was a cliffhanger story-wise, it meant there was another movie coming. I didn't think about box office or if a film did well. So I've, I don't think I've ever quite gotten over the fact that there was never a follow-up. To my <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like in my head, it's, I just, I'm still waiting. So there definitely um, should have been. Uh, worst case, watch Chud Bud Chud Two. Um, <laughs> it's a really bad sequel. That's all I, don't I can even say. Know if Chud Two is a sequel to Chud, I don't. I don't think I'm it pretty is. sure it's not. It's but not. I do know I watched it the same time I watched Nightbreed. Not kidding. I actually did watch them together back in the day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I did not watch Chud Two until I had moved to LA and I found a VHS tape of it somewhere. Um, at one of the VHS swaps, I think it was probably we did a VHS swap oh, at Jump, Jump Cut, and I swear. I got Chud too there, and I watched it. And oh, that's that's a tough one to get. Well, through. I hadn't seen Chud, so I <laughs> so it was particularly like, what are we watching? Like, I didn't get, I hated it at the time. I have not rewatched it since I was twelve. So, um, okay, so Chud all right, is not on my list. No, no spoiler. Um, all right, so our number ten. I did not see that coming. That we both. Oh, well, I'm glad it's on your list. Um, all right, let's see. I wonder. Okay, let's make the call right now before we go any further. I'm going to quickly scan my list. I'm going to predict that we have three more. I'm going to say four total. Yeah, three four more. Total. Okay. Four total. Okay, I think total. that's a good one. Okay, so we're okay. both saying four total. Okay, let's see. So my number nine uh, is the last really, really good, almost great movie by a certain best horror director of all time, possibly, Mr. John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Higher. Okay, good. So I will say nothing about Sutter Kane or Sam Neill or Jorgen Pritchett. Okay, moving on to... <laughs> All right, so that's my number nine. What's your number nine? My number nine is, you knew it's going to be on here somewhere. 
My favorite horror comedy, over the top, hilariously weird, wacky, giant monster movie ever in the history of giant monster movies. And that is 1998's Deep Rising by Steven Sommers. Whoa. Uh, um, higher on someone's list? Are you serious? You <laughs> no, I said high- someone. Someone out there. I don't know who. Someone's sitting there going, those higher than mine. Anyway, you have not been Bromley'd. <laughs> okay. Um, so this gets my number nine because um, there are definitely movies that had more of an effect on me. But I will say the one movie that I will watch with gusto Anytime. It doesn't matter how recently I've seen it, what the circumstance is. I will fucking watch Deep Rising anytime. I love this movie so much. It is just a joy. And I know that the CG does not hold up well. Um, and there are parts that are better than others, but there is just so much love and humor and just wackiness and just good vibes in this movie that I will watch it anytime. And I do have to say, even though that the creature effects um, kind of for the end giant creature may not be quite as glorious as I remember them being in 1998, there are a lot of really good effects in there. And oh gosh, the, the main effects person is escaping me now, but it was a really good team it was somebody who i was like holy shit they did this um, i assume treat williams did it himself he's such <laughs> no, a badass he's like i bring my probably, own <laughs> when i brought him in on my jet ski yeah yeah uh, but which may be a wave runner actually i think mm. it might be a wave runner but that's okay um but there's this one scene where this guy's been like partially digested and gets spit back out by the creature and the effects hold up like they mm. are still really cool so it is there are certain scenes in it that are this nice mix of practical and the actual cg effects and i love the giant monster it's a monster that i had never seen before and um you know i think underwater comes close but doesn't quite go as weird and unexplained as it does in deep rising and greatest twist of a film ever in the history and talk about hook i When I first got to Hollywood, before I actually ever learned how movies were made or how to pitch things out, I probably took three meetings where I was trying to sell people on letting me do a deep rising too. Not even the fact that it was like 20 years after the fact that deep rising one didn't, you know, exactly like, you know, stomp box office or anything like that. But it was that same kind of naivety of, but it set up a perfect hook. How can you not make deep rising two? Um, And now I understand the logistics behind that. But someday, someday is going to be like, here's your million, Becca. Go make Deep Rising or remake Deep Rising. My, my favorite thing that you've ever said right now is the idea that here's a million dollars to remake <laughs> what would probably cost you a hundred million dollars. So your naivety has never come through cleaner than I'll what? take in a million dollars. I'm going to set it in a single room. Oh, it's going to okay. be All right. set in a suburban house. You know what? I'm going to make the entire thing like unfriended it's gonna be shot through facebook y'all actually no that could be cool him on a jet ski in the middle of nowhere and that's the whole movie like it's <laughs> and just he's on person. a cell phone the whole yeah, time like talking with somebody on land who's trying to help him defeat the sea monsters uh, the other that thing you just said million dollar deep rest. your million dollar pay. the other thing you said that i did not like I, I i like this movie when i started but i haven't seen it since but i have no memory that there was a twist of any kind <gasps> 
So now, now you're making me feel like I need to, is the only twist I could think of is that I thought for a long time it was the movie virus and I hated that movie. Oh God. I kind of got them mixed up because they're around the same time for me. I watched them. That's blasphemy. You cannot uh, confuse deep rising with virus. I'm pretty sure they have have a couple actors in common. (laughs) I I feel like they share it. Virus is, um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Cliff Curtis. Um, Yeah. And I do have like, I will say it's kind of a guilty pleasure. Like I find virus quite watchable, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, But deep rising. Oh man, this film, it's just my joy. It's my joy in life. All right. Well, I already knew that. So no big surprises for me on that one. Um, All right. My number eight. Okay. So yeah, I missed my nine. Oh, wait, oh, I missed my nine. My, I'm bumped. Um, my number eight is one that I just rewatched a couple nights ago because I hadn't seen it since I saw it in, I think I saw it in the theater. And I was so creeped out by this movie when I was younger. I was curious if it held up. And it was great. It was actually very hard to find. It was on YouTube, um, but it wasn't like streaming anywhere, which was really surprising. And that is a Japanese film called Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who was who very big for making Pulse, which was a big one. A couple weeks ago on our Patreon, we talked about his first film, Sweet Home, Home Sweet mm-hmm. Home or whatever it was, that was, which is nothing like this. It's like the opposite. He, he's made, um, what's another one? Retribution. And um, I'll, I'll clarify quickly. He did not make the American film Pulse. He made the original, which is yeah, he made the Japanese Cairo movie. or Kiro, yeah. which is um, really, really good, really fucking good. Yeah, yeah. So all his movies um, in the last like fifteen years have all kind of they kind of blend together. But one from a couple years ago called Creepy that I talked about on a, our old show that was really quite scary. That but was this really one, good. Yeah, that was really good. Um, this one I think is his best of of his films. And rewatching it, I was like. Yeah, the nice thing about sometimes movies like this is if you forget kind of the what of a movie, like I remembered the setup, but I'd forgotten kind of where it went. And it's mm-hmm. got this very, it's a bit of a pun in, in terms of this movie, but it's got a mesmerizing quality to the filmmaking itself. It's a lot of long take. It takes its time slowly and it pulls you in with a lot of ambiguity, kind of like the start of that TV show we we're just talking about, Archive 81, because it sets up a mystery. Basically, people are being um, mostly, mostly women, but there is a, a case later on where it's a man are being murdered uh they're being left with an x slashed into their uh, below their neck and each time they find the person who did it they often have just tried to kill themselves or something and when they're interviewed they're very calm and they remember doing it they don't remember anything else and they don't really understand why they did it they have no Mm -hmm. motivation it's usually their partner or somebody like that their wife uh in one case it's a call girl um and it's just very unexplained and there's nothing to link any of these killings and this actor who's in every film by uh kurosawa uh koji is his name uh yakusho you've you've seen him like at everything and he's got that great just great japanese mature looking face of a detective and he He's trying to solve it, but he's got other problems at home where his wife is suffering some sort of malady and she's depressed and confused easily. And he's he's really struggling to balance this case with this kind of a home life. And he starts to figure out that he believes that it could be somebody using mesmerism or some sort of hypnotism to be pulling off these because it's the only thing that can kind of explain the randomness of these kind of suggestions and uh you when you meet the guy it's no big reveal so i'll tell you up front because you learn pretty quickly he's this guy kind of doesn't he's this young guy good looking kind of almost like a slacker just kind of wanders around asking weird questions to people but it gets more and more sinister as it goes it's one of those things like it's almost like one of those movies where you're watching someone who seems a bit daft and not quite right in the head and then suddenly on a dime they turn like icily intelligent and it's actually quite chilling in a way Mm -hmm. um 
it gets even more abstract than that with where it goes to what what it what it is and i won't it certainly won't ruin that part for people but this is a really like this came out i guess it was the two years after or a year after seven so it's right around the same time it's definitely that kind of subgenre of that dark um dark police procedural but this I, I i think this is a more interesting horror film i think there's just something about the way this feels that gets under your skin like even i watched just a couple nights ago and i'm still kind of feeling the style of it um it's put together in such an interesting way but i know bong john ho and scorsese are both two people who think it's one of the best horror films of that like the last 20 years or whatever so you know it's in pretty good company it, it won't be for everyone but if you like those kind of dark procedural serial killer in quote marks because it's never a thriller it's way mm-hmm. more meditative than that um but i like this movie a lot so i was really happy this is the only one i rewatched to kind of just make sure it was worthy um and i'm glad to include it nice sure well um my number eight is also from south korea mm. and this is whispering corridors oh, i never and saw this- that one it started a whole chain of films for me. Um, so Whispering Corridors is 1998 and it's co-written and also directed by Park Kan Hyun, um, which I don't think I've seen any of their other work, but this for me, um, it, it definitely kickstarted my like ring grudge, you know, kind of the Asian horror film onslaught that we saw in the early 2000s. This was the first one I saw. Hmm. And I saw this um, while I was still in college. I, I remember watching a VHS copy that somebody had and it just blew my mind at the time. Um, it's very much kind of a standard what I'll call dark academia story. It's set in South Korea and I, I don't know the full history behind it, but it's Right at the tail end of some type of militarization, like censorship is being lifted, but certain people in the school are still part of kind of the old ways of doing things and are far stricter with corporal punishment. They beat the students. Um, And it begins with the death of a student and then it just continues from there. And what feels like a very traditional ghost story, but it does a lot like one of the students is really into art. So art becomes a huge part of the haunting. Um, This for me, I saw the entire series and was excited for every single one. It was followed up with um, Memento Mori was the next one and Whispering Corridors. And there's one after what is it called Hmm. voice um i think was Hmm. the last one yeah voice and a blood pledge i didn't even know that there was a fifth one um but yeah the this one whispering corridors memento mori and wishing stairs are all three just amazing films Hmm. very much about the harshity of the educational system and very much about like the the kind of abuse that took place in it um, as presented through a horror film and finding out secrets within the school. It's very straight up dark academia. Um, mm. So, yeah, this is and I'm shocked you have not seen this. No, one. I've seen the cover, but I just have never seen it. It's, I, you know, there's a couple that would surprise you. Another one from the 2000s I still haven't seen. I, I know I'm going to love is um, A Tale of Two Sisters. Mm-hmm. Just weirdly. Oh, it's just, sometimes there's just these like random big ones I just haven't seen yet. Don't know why. Oh, and I will say, like, Whispering Corridors is great. Wishing Stairs for me might be my favorite of the mm. entire film series, which I, I kind of describe to people as it's like Suspiria as a ghost story. Because hmm. um, it's set at a ballet school, a real competitive ballet school, but it's got this ghost story bend to it and this really cool oh. backstory folk story that comes into it. Um, I think that one isn't until like 2002 or three. But yeah, it all started with Whispering Corridors. 
Okay, nice. Yeah, no, I did, don't know it. Um, all right, my number seven is one that has already been gotten a, a title throw out earlier in the show that I wasn't expecting from you. Uh, totally about something totally different. And that is one of my favorite movies of this of this era, uh, The Reflecting Skin, directed by oh, Philip nice. Ridley. Uh, this is just a favorite of mine. It really is in terms of like the style and the kind of movies I like. This and it's as close as we'll get to David Lynch on this list. I I, I think it's very much Lynch meets Terrence Malick is like a dead on description of what it is doing a Southern Gothic or rural Gothic, I guess you could call um, horror film. It's, it's one of the most Gothic feeling movies I've ever seen. And Philip Ridley, you know, didn't make a, a lot of films, but this one really stands out as kind of a visionary piece. And it's a young boy um, trying to just cope with like rural life. It's probably set in the fifties. It's kind of hard to tell because of where, where it is. It's um, I think it's end up shot somewhere like Alberta, Canada, even though it's meant to be America. And he has all these different fantasies and like ideas about the world. Uh, and, you know, he has feelings about his father, kind of a, not a great father or his, he looks up to Viggo Mortensen's first film actually is his older brother uh, and his relationship with a woman, you know, a, uh, uh, she's a widower who lives down down the street or down the farm or whatever it is who he starts to believe is a vampire in his head and even though he sees her out in the daytime she even says at one point that she's hundreds of years old to him and it just gets his you know mind going and they find a fetus at one point and there's just all these it's very kind of like coming of age but like noticing all these like little things that kind of all together come become a nightmarish vision of childhood but like it's not it's not like one big story and there's like these guys these kind of slick slick looking guys who are probably like pedophiles slash child abductors but they're all treated like almost background danger that's happening around the fringes it's one of those ones where if you were grew up in video stores you probably saw the cover a lot had a great cover with this kind of a shark jawbone behind him and i think it's a whale because it's whale, like yeah. a whaling hook. that's right right and he's yeah. sitting in a little chair and it's just one of those movies first time i watched that i definitely didn't fully get it i remember being like when i start really young i didn't fully understand what i was watching and year after year it's become one of my favorite just films in general um but i really think it's it's a great original disturbing you know, vision that if you're into that kind of thing, I think uh, it's worth getting. And now finally there's a nice Blu-ray. So it's a lot easier to see than even when we started doing the show, it was very hard to see. Yeah. Um, when we started doing the show, I remember that we had to hunt a copy, um, which is, yeah. and that was like 10 years ago, killer POV days, but I had this on my runner up list. So Good. yeah, this is, it's a really tight little art film. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I love it. And and it, it really is dark. I sort you know what? It really changed. How I felt about it. I had seen, seen a lot on video and stuff. Uh, when the Cine family previous theater, that was the silent theater. They, they showed it at midnight once and seeing it on a big screen, it just knocked me out. Like it really felt like a movie that was meant to be shown on a big screen, like just beautiful cinematography. And I remember uh, the car to be the creepiest part. Oh yeah. Is, the, it's the, just the car driving around. Yeah, like it pulls up to him at one point and like touches the like kid's lips saying, you know, yo, would you like us to take you with you? Some it's just it's just got that fear of you don't know what they represent, but it's like the bad parts of the adult world mm-hmm. are all in that car and I don't want any part of it. You know, it's no, it's 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 really a I think a very unique film. Mm-hmm. Um so definitely highest recommend, re- reflecting skin. My number seven is far more commercial, but really um was my teen years. And this is The Craft from 1996, Ooh, cool. directed by Andrew Fleming, who also did one of my other fave films, Hamlet 2, um, <laughs> does not get nearly enough love. I love Hamlet 2. That's hilarious, yeah. 
Anyways, um, so the craft, this came out right at like, you know, I was 16 or I 17 years old. Um, and I remember sitting in class my senior year of high school and holding the pencil and trying to do the trick that they were doing. Like it just painted this beautiful world of teen, what it meant to be a teen female at a time when nobody else was fucking doing that. Everything else that was coming out was very much like either slasher holdouts um, or giant monster films like Mimic and The Relic and things like that. You just were not seeing anything that was a female story, um, especially not one so much ingrained about what it is to be a teen female. And um, the craft did it. And it just, I remember wanting that. I wanted the powers. I wanted the friendships. I wanted the camaraderie. I wanted to stand on a beach and scream at lightning and then find sharks given to me as a present the next day. Hmm. Um, And so this, it ended up um, becoming a real formative film um, in my later teen years into college years. I wanted to date all of them. No doubt, they were all hot. <laughs> they were all awesome, oh but yeah, no, God, I, yeah. I, no, I remember, and I, I remember, I did briefly date someone at the, when it came out who was really into that movie too, which was just mm-hmm. funny because and into like I think there was a thing about dressing like them and acting oh, yeah. like them for a period, which was really good. It, it's also just a really well made movie. It's really fun. My big one when I was a kid, and I like to think that all kids did this. That it's not just me being weird. Um, I used to stand outside on my parents live on this giant hill, and I used to try to control the wind with my mind. Mm. And I remember standing on their porch and saying, okay, wind, come. And then the wind would actually blow because they lived on the top of a really giant fucking windy hill um, (laughs) at the base of the Appalachian Mountains. And then it would, you know, it was like constantly windy anyway. But I'd be like, I did that. Did I do that? Okay, let's try it again. Okay, it didn't work that time. But like best two out of three. Wind, come. And you see it in that movie that at the end she controls the wind. And I was like, oh, shit, that's the power I was always hoping for. That sounds like my power of turning off lights, uh, street lamps. (laughs) (laughs) You told me about that. Which is actually real power. The night after you puked on me at Chattanooga, you told yeah. me about how you could turn off lights. It was in happening your on mind. the way there. Yeah, it still can. Um, it's not a very practical skill. <laughs> it, it hasn't gotten me out of many uh, problems before. But, you have the mental equivalent of a clapper. Yeah, yeah. Hey, but I don't have to exert the physical energy of clapping. Uh, kind of genius when you think about um yes i'll be in the next x-men and it will be really dull and i can make a slight breeze not every time but like best like three out of five you know yeah yeah. get a little breezy yeah no that's that could be a passing wind thing but our our weak witch and warlock skills whatever yeah Uh, all right, moving on. Um, <laughs> my number six is uh, probably the movie that most will kind of be influencing me now and into like the kind of film I'm going to make. It's And it's just had, a, I would say, maybe the biggest influence on in, what, what you consider as indie horror now and personal horror filmmaking, and that is Larry Fessenden's Habit. This film Ooh. from 1995, I can't think of a movie that has probably had a bigger impact a decade after it came out than when it came out. I, I feel like the people who were watching it, like, and people like Ty West and A24, and you know, like, I feel like there's a whole aesthetic that has come from the idea that you can make a very personal, small drama that is also a horror film 
and have those two things run together. And I, and so I think this is a very influential film, definitely, definitely on me, but I think on a lot of people and a lot of what we think of as indie horror now. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, Larry Fessenden cast himself and he was really cool looking, you know, when he was young, he looks like kind of a fucked up Jack Nicholson and he's like, you know, had a bad breakup. He's, his dad's died and left him some money. He's kind of a drunk in this town, uh, in, in New York. It's a good New York City film too. And he, you know, starts falling in love with this mysterious woman he meets who's kind of a, succubus slash vampire though those words are kind of never really thrown around that Mm -hmm. much and um it's also touches on addiction and other things like that throughout but it's it's just really the the relationship itself is interesting so i always think you know it doesn't work for all movies but movies like that really do hold up to that test of if you took out the horror element would it still be interesting and in this case it probably would be because you'd be watching this really interesting relationship movie because yeah it is, even though that it weaves that horror element in, have it, it's at its core about the New York art scene and yeah. addiction um, and trying to find, to heal trauma through art in the weirdest way possible is through this New York scene of the 1990s. And I would watch the New York art scene film that is Larry Fessenden. Yeah, no, he's um, great without the horror side of it because so much of it feels improvised and off the cuff like it just feels like larry being larry in this movie like it does not feel like they had a firm script that a lot of it he's just throwing stuff out there but it works and it makes it more endearing yeah i think it influenced um, a lot of the digit like it wasn't digital obviously mm-hmm. it was a film but i think it influenced a lot of what became the early mumblecore and the early like improv movies and so i think that's why fessenden's also kind of become their you know he's cast in a lot of their movies and mm-hmm. so it's it's it is i think a really important movie but i just also loved it as a film and so i had to get that on the list uh so nice. it's number six habit my number six is definitely more of a big budget studio film, um, but very timely considering a passing this week. And that is Lake Placid. Um, Wait, who passed? Betty White. Oh, I, I totally forgot Betty White was in that movie. Oh, yeah. I, I, like I'm thinking, wait, Phil Pullman makes out with Betty White? What? <laughs> no, this Bridget movie, Fonda? Um, Bridget Fonda, um, Lake Placid, and this I hold in the same kind of um, happy canister that I put Deep Rising in. It's just my big budget giant monster movie that is fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. Um, Steve Miner directed a uh, so script good, yeah. by David E. Kelly. Um who went on to be like television famous um, and make a bajillion shows. But this script for me was just constant laughs. And I loved how witty the script was where they were just constantly ripping each other and it didn't take itself seriously. And Betty White out of her entire career, this is my favorite character that she ever played Mm. is old woman who loves her pet alligators and decides to keep feeding them. And um, I, I got to rewatch this. I remember thinking it was really funny and fun when I first saw it, but I have not seen any of the Lake Placid since that first one. I've so. only seen the first one and I don't know if I want to see any of the others. Cause, Cause there's quite became, a few, right? It became like a sci-fi okay, yearly, yeah. you know, let's connect yeah. it back to Lake Placid. And I, so I've never seen any of the sequels. Um, but this first movie was such a gem for me and Betty White's character, how she um, literally hates the entire town. She hates the law enforcement. Hmm. She is just this old curmudgeonly woman who lives by herself and doesn't take anything seriously, but views these alligators as kind of alligator as kind of her pet. Hmm. Um 
And I I just find it to be so fun and endearing. And this is another one of those movies that I will sit down and watch. And the giant alligator, there are moments that they CG it. There are other moments that you can tell it's an animatronic. Hmm. Um, On the Fancy Spance Screen Factory Blu-ray, the CG can kind of, it doesn't hold up as well as I think it did when I saw it theatrically in the 90s. But that said, it's still just a fucking fun movie. Um, So I don't know about any of the sequels. I won't vouch for those. But the original Lake Placid is a yeah, you're making me want to rewatch that movie. It's been so long. Um, but I will follow your animal attack movie with an animal attack movie. Um, not necessarily famous as an animal attack movie, but has the most important animal attack scene of all time, which is uh, you do not want to be bit by a Sumatran rat monkey. Um, <laughs> coming in at number five uh, is the movie that can only be titled Brain Dead, um, a.k.a. <gasps> Dead America Alive. Dead Alive, directed by Sir the Knighted. Uh, Peter Jackson from 92. Very hard only having one Peter Jackson film on this list for me this time. I was going to say, I can't believe you left off Bad Taste. Well, Bad Taste. Is Bad Taste? No, 92. Bad Taste must actually be 89 or something. Oh, what about Feebles? That must be even earlier then. Feebles is right after. Yeah, so I don't. I'd have to look up the years, but if Brain Dead's 92. Those were at least a couple years before. No, for me, the one that was hard to leave off was actually Frighteners because Frighteners oh, yeah. is at the end. And I love Frighteners. Frighteners I is have, so much fun. That's on my 10 runner up. Yeah, no, it's a great movie. But I, you know, if I'm picking one and again, it just shows how killer he was at the start of his career. But Brain Dead's like a masterpiece, a, a zombie masterpiece. It's a period piece horror film. It's freaking hilarious. It's got a great love story at the center of it. For me, it, it was very personal because it was one of like the first movies I tried to get in that was a couple years ahead of what I should be allowed in to see. And it was New Zealand, so it was like a big deal. And I, you know, I lived where the little baby goes into the park towards the end. That's the park I walked home to get to my house every day. <laughs> so like there was lots of just little things where I was like, oh wow, this is like like made in our backyard, basically, is how it felt. And so even when you were showing this to uh film students and I walked in like halfway through, I just was I enjoyed so much just sitting there and kind of taking it in. and again if you haven't that's, seen it, it's utterly bonkers that's great because a couple of the film students had to leave um class because it was affecting them so viscerally wild yeah oh yeah and yeah. i mean it's it's just so funny like it, it's i think it's second only to like reanimator in terms of that balance between mm-hmm. really messed up shit and being actually funny and and it does it so well and tim Baum as the lead it, i've always been a little surprised he didn't have an international career he's a really good new zealand actor he's been in tons and tons of new zealand stuff but i was surprised because he's really good as the lead in this he's such a naive kind of innocent guy in this movie that i'm I was a little surprised he didn't uh, pick up a, a bigger career after this but yeah if you haven't seen this one and i think surprisingly there's still a lot of horror fans who for some reason just haven't seen dead alive uh it's just balls to the wall masterpiece Okay, so we are on, that was your number five, correct? That is right. So I am on to my number five, um, which is in no way a horror comedy. Um, And this is is probably, no, it's actually not the most serious one on my list. I have a lot of serious ones coming up. But my number five is 1997 Event Horizon. Well, sorry. It's not. I took a. I'll talk while you're coughing because I took Thanks. a gamble. <laughs> I took a gamble by not putting this on my list, even though I love this movie and and I I'm with you completely. And I kind of was like, well, I'm pretty sure Becca's going to get this one. So. <laughs> you know it. <clears throat> no, Event Horizon melted my brain. Yeah. Um, when I saw it, and it, and I felt bad because it melted my mother's as well. So my mom um is a huge sci-fi nerd. Like she's total Trekkie, and um. It, during this time, horror was having a weird period during the 90s. 
the trailer for this does not read 100% as a fucking creepy horror film. It kind of reads more, I'll call it like a sphere movie, um, yeah. kind of more as like a space mystery, a uh, space sphere was oddity. Sphere was, so sphere boring. was really boring. Really boring. Yeah. Um, but it definitely has kind of the trailer seems more like a sphere type movie where it's like we're in space and then something weird happens or we're in space and it's a tense thriller. Like it does not read as crazy as it actually fucking gets. And so I remember being home from school and my mom and I decided to go see it together. And I, she was white. She was like pale the entire movie. Um, as soon as we get into like the, what happened to the original crew and the, you know, I can see things now and I can, you know, everything um, that comes in the second and third act of that movie. And it melted my brain too. I, I remember at the time, that it was getting bad reviews. And I remember reading somewhere people calling it um, pinhead in space, that it was just Hellraiser in space. And for me, it's not that. For me, this film does something different. This one haunted me in a way that Hellraiser never did. Hellraiser, I looked at the Cenobites. I looked at Julia. It was wicked cool. There was something kind of sexy about it too. I get none of that in this. This is just straight nightmare fuel. Wait, no sexy Sam Neill? Come on, Sam Neill. Sam Neill. (laughs) He's incredible. I mean, it's a great dark performance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's really scary in it. This is like one of the most disturbing things he's done, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is a great, this is a great freaking movie. And it's, and it's, I mean, again, the fact that he has two that are going to be on these lists in this decade shows he was making some pretty interesting choices, you know, uh, during that period. And he was a bit of a go-to, but that movie, there's a couple scenes that while you're watching it, you're like, I can only imagine what a director's cut, like what's probably on the cutting room floor. There must be some real crazy gore because of the stuff that is in there is just wild. Um, and I'm sure they made, and the weird thing is I just don't like Paul W.S. Anderson. He's never even come close to this again. Like yeah. he keeps making, you know, whether it's Resident Resident evil, evil or whatever, it's like, there's a generic quality to all the films and they do well. And he's like a competent director, but I feel like with this movie, there was something a bit more visionary mm-hmm. going on. And I don't, understand why you know he hasn't really touched that again i don't know if it did well or not i can't really recall i don't recall it either i i do recall that i didn't think it had done as well here and a number of years ago i was teaching a ucla extension class and i was teaching the history of horror history but my students were all based um in berlin and they were Mm. all um uh german and so i remember that during that class i was talking about top films of the 90s and i don't even remember how it came up and um i casually mentioned event horizon and one of my students was like oh that was huge here that was like the biggest film of the summer like we all went to see that like they were comparing it to like jaws um and so international is weird like i I remember this is true because i remember when i was in new zealand for frighteners it was considered a bomb like in america and it was a big deal because it was michael j fox you know being a movie star and it didn't work um and uh what i remember is it was like number one in brazil like, and that was a big deal. It kind of saved the movie yeah. that it was number one in Brazil. I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, yeah so, movies are, uh, are, yeah. I don't know how Event Horizon did here in the States, but man, my my students uh, in Berlin loved it and it was a huge part of their childhood. So wow. um, I hope I hope it did well there. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was my number five, Event Horizon. All right. Um, now we're getting into the, once you get into those top four. All right. My number four is, um, you know, one that has left a big influence and still 
deeply underseen over here. And we are talking, it's a little a partial cheat, but not really. Um, surprising no one that I put this in. This is The Kingdom by Lars von Trier, which is a two season show, if you would call mm-hmm. it that, but it never really feels, it certainly doesn't feel like television. It feels uh, like, a, like a limited series. I also don't know if it ever played as television in this part of the world. I, I think we all got it on tapes. So I don't yeah. think, so I don't think it'd be, but either way, it's one of the, still one of the creepiest, most kind of, oh, there's creepy speaking. Of I creepy, hear screams. There was a scream, which is uh, usually that means one kid has jumped uh, out of the, at the other kid uh, and terrified them because they're all scared. <laughs> of the so that's all you have to do to be scary. Uh, Von Trier knows this power well. Uh, but yeah, this set at this like major advanced hospital, the kingdom, which is in Denmark. And, you know, it's the kind of bastion of modern science, but it also then has this flip side that it's, it's built on something very supernatural. And there's all these strange spiritual phenomenons happening at the same time undercutting all these people trying to use like science and trying to be scientific in their approach so it's like these these doctors there's also a dark secret that is from the past like weird kind of pagany kind of culty type stuff there's there, like a hedgehog monster in the basement too yeah there's all sorts there's all sorts of crazy stuff what makes it so interesting is it's also funny and if you've seen any of and this is a period where i was watching all the dogma movies and things like that so it was all kind of hitting at once and it's barring all of that and it's it, it might take modern viewers a couple episodes to like get into the vibe of it but once you're there it has some really effective creepy stuff that would be i think useful for lo-fi filmmakers to kind of study um but it also in the second season which i think i might like even more weirdly is where it gets real bonkers and udo kier this character enters the story it has the most incredible childbirth sequence ever filmed and it's just it's a wild piece of cinema that just, I still feel maybe because there was a really cheesy, like generic American redo for TV, mm-hmm. Stephen King's The King. It just, it, maybe that's kind of replaced it like things sometimes do um, when they're remade. But this is, and it obviously was part of the influence of Garth Marenghi's um, Dark Places, like the oh, setting, yeah. I'm sure, is because making fun of the kingdom and things like that. So, yes, I had to put this on high because I want to make sure people uh, who haven't checked it out take this one on. So that's The Kingdom. Um, so shifting into number four for me is um, by far one of the darkest films I have on this list. And this is California with a K from 1993. You got to shade that dog and teach it, huh? <laughs> You're witted now, peaches. <laughs> I fucking love this movie. This was like- I saw it like 10 times. I swear. I, th- I think oh I saw it more than almost any movie of that time period, believe it or not. This was like a blind rent for me at some point while I was in high school and it fucking blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and I loved the character. And even after I knew the twist and where it was going, I still watched it a bajillion more times. The cast is amazing. It's Brad Pitt as early, um, Juliette Lewis as Adele, and then it's got David Duchovny and Michelle Forbes in it as well. Um, This was directed by Dominic Senna, I believe it was his first film. Went on to do um, another one of my my fave films that I know we've mentioned before, Whiteout, um, which is really good. And the Nick Cage season of The Witch, which is surprisingly watchable. Well, I've never watched that. I got to watch that. It's surprisingly fun. Um, It it got a lot of flack when it came out for kind of like the cagey performance. Um, But it's surprisingly fun. Okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, California... Story setup is that um, this kind of yuppie hipster couple in the 90s decides that they're going to leave what I think is kind of like a New England 
Um, it's an East Coast town. I can't even remember where it is, but it's like an East Coast University town. Um, he's a professor. She's a photographer. They're very kind of um, high classy art world people. And they decide that they're going to um, drive cross country in their convertible because they want to move to California and that they want to see if they can find anybody to ride share with them on the trip cross country to California so they can split the cost of gas. And who contacts them is Brad Pitt's character early, who is just this dirty trailer, um, just a redneck, for lack of a better way of putting it, who constantly seems off the rails, is constantly spouting wisdom, but always seems off the rails and very oppressive with his girlfriend, Juliette Lewis's character, Adele. But um, things feel off from the beginning, but David Duchovny is very much like, we need to open up our lives to people who aren't like us. Let's try this. It's going to be fun. And they start cross country together. Remember, it's a pre-pandemic movie. That's why yeah. he felt like that. He wouldn't think like that now. No, no. <laughs> You'd be like, not on our car. <laughs> no, get, away, get out of my car. Are you going to put yeah. a mask on? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they hop in the car and they head cross country together. And slowly throughout the course, um, David starts becoming a little bit more like early. Um, you start early has this violent streak and you see David Duchovny's character kind of understanding it. And, and, um, and even more interesting, David Duchovny is writing a book on serial killers. So as they travel across country, they are start stopping at sites where serial killers did their murders so that he can kind of, you know, research it for his book. And it's definitely doing something to everybody. It's kind of unhinging everybody in different ways. And it goes from there. Super dark. This is not a light movie, um, but somehow I loved where this movie went. And I think that what this always comes down to for me is characters. This It's a very small film. It's four characters in a car for 90% of the movie. But the characters are so amazing and how the four characters affect each other. Um, it literally becomes like a boiler pot and you're throwing these four distinctive personalities in and then seeing what happens as one of them starts to explode. And the characters are what drive it the entire way through. Yeah, no, it's it's a good one. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's also one of the things I've liked about Yellow Jackets is seeing Juliet Lewis again, because mm-hmm. it feels like I haven't, hadn't seen her for a while. But there was a little period here where you're talking about serial killers where she was in Cape Fear. Then she was in this and Natural Born Killers all within Mm -hmm. a few years. And they all had that very similar dark core to all three of those. Uh, And she was really good in all of them. Like really somebody who, I don't know, again, it's always interything when somebody disappears for a while and then they come back. So I'm glad she Mm -hmm. got a a meaty role to return to. And Um, even seeing her in this film where she, um, without giving away a lot, she plays more of a victim in this film than anything else. And then going to something like Natural Born Serial where she's just all fucked up and, and, no holds barred serial killer. Um, Like I always looked at Mallory worse than, um, Oh gosh, his name, Mickey, Uh, Mickey. Mickey, Mickey, Well, it's also kind of like a cartoon, right? It's a messed up Mm -hmm. Tex Avery cartoon, that movie in a weird way. Um, Yeah. Okay. That's a good, I'm I'm enjoying some of these callbacks to movies that I hadn't even thought about for so long. Some of them. Um, It's really fun. Um, Number three on my list. It's, could be higher on your list because it's, as you know, it's really my favorite movie of all time. Body parts, yes, 
finally yeah, yeah, is that this, on your this list? Isn't, this isn't on my list. Okay, I'll wait. No, I'll wait. I'll wait. You've got a couple spots. It's not even on my runner-up list, okay. Elric. Well, this could this could go anywhere from three to number one on mine. So I've been waiting. I legit was expecting you to put it at one. Well, I no, it's in the it's top three because it's like the one I probably enjoy the most. But there's there's a movie that's just like a number one type movie. But Body Parts is one I I you know this was actually something I didn't bring up last time I fought for this with you. Uh, go listen to Screen Drafts if you want to hear us talk about this movie for an extended time and still not make it on the list. <laughs> Uh, so this is my chance to kind of get my uh, get it placed somewhere. Uh, I didn't. It's the the story it's based on is called Choice Cuts, this French story, but by uh, one of the writers is Pierre Bollet, who I didn't somehow I just overlooked this. This person wrote Vertigo and Eyes Without a Face as well. Oh my god, which is kind of mind blowing. So you're like, oh, that's really interesting that all these are my favorite movies. Don't so what make is it? We have respect. For I know. I, I think so I'm going to make you rewatch it. I think I'm going to like convince you to re. I mean, they didn't write the script. It's based on the story, but um. And the other cool thing is there's a doctor in this movie. I didn't realize this till I was making my list, played by Lindsay Duncan, who is also the, uh, she's like evil kind of scientist doctor in this. She is the woman that the boy thinks of is a vampire and reflecting skin. So there's a connection between those two. Um, an actress I haven't seen much outside of those. Uh, anyway, so this is Jeff Fahey, is a, a criminal psychologist, and he, um, don't laugh. <laughs> That's a real Sorry. job that I he almost was had. Really trying oh. to keep Back. a straight face. He's serious. As soon as she said Jeff, Jeff Fahey. Fahey, I flashed to the movie and started laughing again. He's a serious <laughs> criminologist, and he's going to get to the root of what makes him tick. He, he's like uh, he's in in one of his consoles with a dark criminal on his I way just home. Pictured the car scene, and I lost it again. Hold it is on. not a comedy. This is a very serious movie. Uh, anyway, he uh, he gets one of the best accidents ever. You see him get utterly messed up and uh, by a massive truck accident, and his arm arm is severed. Um, he is quickly taken for an emergency surgery, where these doctors are going in for, through these cutting edge graphics that you'll see uh, that are green and go beep beep beep. Uh, they they re- they re- give him an arm, and everything fine and as he kind of goes he starts noticing he's having some issues with the arm and he comes to learn that they he got the arm of the serial killer and the arm seems to have a bit of a mind of its own uh he then finds out that all the different body parts uh, uh of that serial killer were farmed out and he starts tracking each piece which i always enjoy just him putting together the different characters like the legs to the kid playing basketball or brad dorf's an artist who's painting really dark oh, visions God. <laughs> great this movie rules i guess this is my uh, i guess this must be my deep rising because uh you always laugh at it but then i every time i talk about it somebody writes me going wow i just watched on your and it's the best thing ever so i can't be totally wrong here so just go with it anyway it builds fair to enough. some fair it, enough. it does build to some pretty bonkers almost reanimator-esque uh moments in the second half and one of my favorite uh Yes, cop driving scenes uh, between two cars. Uh, I want you. I don't want to ruin it for somebody who hasn't seen it. It's just too fun. It's it. It's like a movie that's on my almost list would be like is a sequel would be Maniac Cop Two, and it's got mm-hmm. a Maniac Cop Two level bonkersness to it, it like where it just goes for it. Um, I can't help that I didn't see this on a bad date, so I don't. I'm not predisposed to disliking it like some people who saw it <laughs> when they were young. Um, I remember, but uh, anyway, no, I love this film. It's definitely one. One of my favorites of the decade it's my like most me pick of this list um, my next two are more like you know really great movies that have to be at the top of a list so that's body parts at three where it belongs my number three is from 1997 and this is vincenzo natalie's cube oh cool um which this is one that um blew my mind completely differently than event horizon did this is one where i found myself questioning 
what it meant, what it means. Why did the characters do that? What was the symbolism behind their names? What was the symbolism behind that? Who am I? What is the white light? Why would the government do this? Was there a government? Was it an alien organization? I loved how much this movie made me think. Um, to, and the only other film that I can really remember doing this around the same time period was something like Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway. Um, not putting Lynch on the list, but yeah, I loved that this film raised a bunch of questions, didn't really answer any of them, but then somehow still felt complete at the end. I loved how contained it was and how, um, it felt as if it was low budget because, you know, the rumors came out immediately that there was ever only one cube and that they were just kind of redressing it, that it was a low budget film, but it was a high concept film. And I love that. I saw this on Sci-Fi Network probably maybe a year or two after it was originally made. And it was just one film that I had stumbled on, like, you know, tonight on Sci-Fi Cube. And I was like, okay, cool, Cube. Um, And it was just captivating is the only way I can describe this film. I've seen the sequels. Um, They do interesting things. I have to say like both cube two and hypercube, they do or cube hypercube and zero. zero. Yeah. Yeah, They both do interesting things. None of them are quite this level. Um, But yeah, the quick like elevator pitch for cube is a group of people wake up and they have put in a series of cubes that have a series of, of traps And some of the cubes, as soon as you walk into them, will kill you. And so they have to figure out which cubes won't kill you while they argue about why they're there, who put them there, what the belief is, and what they all have to do with each other. And this was kind of like this predecessed Saw for me. This is where Saw came out of. It all started with Cube. Actually, I'll say- Basically, Beyond the Black Escape Room would be- It's Beyond the Black Rainbow and Escape Room, basically. It is. It's yeah. beyond the black. And I will say that I think that the films like this all started kind of the why are we together and why are we all here and what's the bigger meaning? There's another 90s film called Colobos that no one has seen. I think Vinegar Syndrome put it out. Yeah, I remember Maybe you not. talking about Somebody it. Somebody yeah. did. Um, and it feels like a combination of Big Brother, My Little Eye. Like it's yeah. you were seeing a good amount of these films kind of start trickling in around this time period. Um, but Cube was the first one that just like went completely like sci-fi weird for me and yeah love cube yeah natalie's really his all his early stuff's really interesting and i loved mm-hmm. that this was the one of the first films i'd seen even though it'd been in other stuff the lead one of the leads in cube kind of the guy who becomes the angry kind of character he was the lead in pin which is one of my mm-hmm. favorite canadian films he was the boy in pin and so i remember that for me was one of the first times i saw him in another canadian movie i was like oh yeah. he's this guy so and i guess he's vincent natalie's best friend or something growing up like they were close friends so oh wow because um, I, I can't remember i must have heard an interview with him or something but um yeah I, i'm with you i totally forgotten about that for this list and mm-hmm. again it's one of those ones i, I haven't really seen it so i remember soaring, seeing it at a film festival actually and um really having no it, it was cool back then where you had no clue what something was like that it just came out of nowhere um which was great uh speaking of coming out of nowhere my number two which is just a stone cold masterpiece if somebody said i could remake any movie in an american way because it would just be a surefire la hit um not that you need to remake it is uh Takeshi Miike's audition, I just mm-hmm. think, is about as good as horror gets to me. Like, to me, it's just fucking terrifying. And I love any movie that can be that restrained and then go that 
utterly off the rails because that movie is so subtle in terms of its its restrained Japanese, you know, filmmaking that's like just locked off quiet shots, meditative, like all of this kind of stuff. And then once it turns the gear, it's just one of the most fucked up things I'd ever seen in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it in a movie theater knowing nothing about it. Ri Murakami, the novelist, is the writer who also did a couple years ago, Piercing, which I also really liked. Oh, I love Yeah, Piercing. I think Piercing is one of the better modern movies. But um, yeah, this is about a widower uh, who's, you know, not a bad guy. He's a little pathetic. And he's got a good friend who who uh, is a film producer and is kind of like, you know what, we'll we'll hold a, a movie audition. I'll pretend I've got a film and we'll hold an audition. But what we're really auditioning is for somebody that you can, you know, sleep with or be your new wife kind of thing. And so it's funny thinking about this movie by today's standards. It feels very much like the kind of grooming um, Weinstein kind of concept mm-hmm. at the core, which makes it even more interesting in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, there's a very quiet, very elegant, kind, young, very silent, very, very, you know, traditional Japanese, like from a different era, feels like a woman played by Ihai Shina, who, you know, I mean, I don't think in the history of movies, I can't think of a bigger turnaround from what you start with to where you end in a movie oh with a character. Oh uh, horrifying. Know, it's just amazing. And, she, and she's quiet. And then it's, you know, I just looked up the trailer before I recorded this, and it's kind of the money scene, which has surprised me that the trailer is, the original trailer is her sitting waiting by the phone for this guy to call not knowing if this guy was ever going to call her and she's just utterly still and you see nothing in this there's this bag in the uh background this giant big kind of uh, duffel bag type thing in a big and she just sits there and sits there and sits there and then the phone rings and then suddenly out of nowhere the bag moves and i remember being in the theater still probably my favorite jump in my entire life was that moment and everyone just it was just like such a big moment in oh the theater my gosh. so good I remember we did a screening of this in New York. Um, and I want to say like Fango used to do this line of sponsored screenings and I want to say it was through Fango. Um, I saw it at the two boots pioneer, whatever it was. And uh, like gasps, like yeah. no one was fucking prepared for that. Yeah. It's like, cause you know, in the West, we didn't really know Mike before mm-hmm. this. And, you know, even though he'd been, a, and I, and I feel like the, it's like, we weren't ready for this, like mm-hmm. the shock of that gear. He took this movie to, and yeah. just the kitty 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 it, it, just everything about this movie still gives me chills but I, I mean it when i say like this is one of the movies yeah don't remake it but i can't help but like when i think about the story i'm like oh, i don't know sitting this in hollywood you could probably make a pretty amazing modern version of this if you could find a way to still be surprising you mm-hmm. you couldn't do it beat for beat because people are too familiar with this movie but but the story you know the idea really holds up and it's mm-hmm. kind of fun when i think it's actually a really interesting thing in movies where the person in this case this man he's not a bad he's not like some awful villain he is doing something wrong though and so like it's it, it makes for a much more interesting film than if he was the weinstein guy then it's like all right cool cut him up we don't care but because he's not that guy it makes everything you watch you're so conflicted about what then goes on because yeah. it's so extreme and he's still it, a shithead but he's yeah not he's not he's not villain. so yeah no his yeah. friend's probably a bigger asshole than he is he's just this lonely person so it makes for it just when she kind of goes to town it's it still hasn't really been topped for me for this kind of horror film um i really think it's a special one so if for some random reason you haven't seen this one rush to it yes Okay, number two. Um, my number two is a movie that I still end up like literally I just did a pitch deck last week and and had stills from this like it still infects me in such ways and I think it's been remade and I have not seen the remake because mm. I'm scared of how it will taint the original. 
1990s Jacob's Ladder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This I watched way too young. I mean, I was like, I, I saw this right when it came out um, in 1990. So I would have been what, like 11 um, rented it with my parents, sat on the couch next to him and watched it. And the whole twist at the end, how it is kind of the Owl Creek twist at the end. Well, shit, I'd never seen anything like that. And this is also the first movie that I recall seeing what I'll say, twitchy people, um, which is where you drop frames and it makes people seem really, really twitchy. And um, there's a scene where a guy is in, he's wrapped in some type of device and and you see it twitching and it is unnatural the way that the people in this movie are moving. And it was the first movie that we end up seeing it a lot in the late nineties by the time we get dark to castle movies. Yeah. yeah. Haunting of Hill house. Yeah. They use that shit. It's how Samara moves the way that she does in the ring. Um, it's that same kind of twitchy jumping frames technology, but this was the first one I'd ever seen it in. And fuck if eyeless man with a syringe still does not yeah. occasionally appear in my nightmares. Like that is just a reoccurring character to the point where a lot of times when I think like crafting out monsters, it's always let's put skin over their eyes. Like it yeah. all goes back to that moment of watching it on my parents, like gross ass corduroy couch um, and, and just being so terrified. And the dance floor scene is still one of the most shocking I've ever seen because his girlfriend is getting all sexual on the dance floor and he's watching. And then this this guy, it's like a tail comes out and then like severs. It's it's just a really messed up. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like Adrian Lin's a really good film director, but yeah. tended to make like very sexy dramas, your, your fatal attraction type movies or whatever. And this is taking all those slick elements and then doing this very dark character study mm-hmm. with it. And it's a really good story. Like as a, just a straight story, it's very interesting about these guys vietnam guys who uh, believe they were drugged an agent orange kind of situation and it's all the years later trying to piece it together and something is kind of knocking them off or is it all this guy or is he just all messed up in the head right there's a few yeah. different possibilities and it's and it's tim robbins and a really good performance yeah this 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 I, for some reason i always forget this in terms of horror you know because it's it's somewhere between right it's like mm-hmm. it's like a lost highway in that way where it could be either any category but it's you're right it's such a good movie Oh, I haven't yeah. heard anything good about the uh, remake. I haven't heard a single person really talk about it. So You know, when I heard they were remaking it, I was really excited because I was like, you know, it was kind of like a Suspiria remake for me where I was like, I'm really excited to see what somebody does with it. But whereas I went into the Suspiria remake with the excitement to see what somebody did with it. With this one, it's weird for me to not see a movie. It's weird for me to make the decision of I don't want to ruin where this one originally was for me well it's like um, it looks to me i mean when i saw the trailer to it, it looked more like the flatliners remake where it looks like a totally generic like take all the take all the gritty interesting stuff out mm-hmm. movie versus at least with suspiria whether we like it or not they hired an artist to do it so they did yeah. their own version which i respect that i i don't it's not i actually for like me, the but suspiria I, yeah. remake yeah i, like I need to see it a second time it. yeah there's definitely scenes i loved it's mm-hmm. one i should rewatch. Um, okay. Yeah. It's some good stuff. You're, you're giving me lots of memories of movies. I, you know, I'm remembering my first time watching lots of them actually, as you talk, which is interesting. Um, my number one wasn't, this is like, for me as a bit of a no brainer, cause it would also be, if I was doing my objective list, it would be number one. And in my subjective list, it's also number one. I just think it's the best horror film of that decade. And, uh, that is uh, Candyman directed by Bernard Rose. I just think this is a very special movie. I had a very personal relationship to it. Cause I was, 
14? Yeah, I would have been 92. So I would have been 14. So it's probably one of the first like hard horror films um, that I saw in the theater, um, you know, just went to myself and just fell in love with the way it's made. There's something about um, Bernard Rose maybe doesn't get enough credit for why Candyman is such a good movie. Like everyone's always, you know, obviously Tony Todd, the Philip Glass, but like this guy's a classicist, you know, it's classical filmmaking. Yeah. He, he made Immortal Beloved and Paper House. Like he, he, he wasn't just making a gritty urban horror film. He was bringing like this classical approach to like an urban environment. And I just think there's something about it that's so romantic and unique. And then Clive Barker, you know, taking the Clive Barker elements. This is just one that hasn't ever, um, that power hasn't decreased over time for me with this movie. And then even watching the new film, part of me loving the new film was my love of the original and I, the callbacks to it and the, the kind of feeling. So I had to, had to be true and leave this as high as possible because it just made such an impact on me. Um, so that's my number one, the great Candyman. That's phenomenal. Such an amazing film. And I figured you would put it on your list, which is why I intentionally said, you know what? I can shave this from mine because I know Elric's going to have it somewhere. Oh, I'm um, excited so about your is, number one now. Yes. Yeah, so my number one, we sexy Brom lead in the mouth of madness from 1994 is my number one of the 1990s. Sam Neill. Yeah. Yes. This, I have two Sam Neills on I know. my list. I love it. Um, Three. No, no, two, no, two, two. two I, I wonder if he was in another horror that decade. He was uh, quite soon after he was in that cool vampire one by the Australian mm-hmm. brothers. You know, that one where he's the head of the vampire science fiction, Ethan Hawke thing. Uh, you know, he was doing Jurassic Park. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if he needed like our, our cute yeah. little horror films, but true, um, yeah. yeah. But um, in the mouth of madness, I wasn't until I really started, like, I've always known that this is, um, it's my favorite Carpenter film oh, yeah. um, across the board. And, and, and I mean, I have mad respect to all like the greatest hits of the thing and big trouble and, you know, everything. But this is the one that I, that hit with me. Um, it has nice connections to Prince of Darkness in some ways, because it's like okay. that Lovecraftian weirdness connects the two in some mm-hmm. ways. This one um, was one of those films when I saw in 1994 that I was just blown away by. I ended up, I remember buying a VHS copy of it and just watching it over and over. I loved the world. I loved that it was a literary based story. I loved that it, I didn't understand what was going on most of the time. And that was amazing. And it had some great jump scares. There's a scene where the woman crawls out and then literally rotates her entire torso over top of itself. And there were so many haunting moments um, just even shot around the town, the kid on the bike, the woman with her husband at the hotel. Like there's just so the double irises fucked my shit up. Like there's just so many moments in this movie just horror moments that i will keep with me for you know another 30 years yeah hobbs end um, all the stuff that's in hobbs end where they go it's it's so interesting and so imaginative like you can tell it's coming it's born from some sort of literary de- demon you know it's yeah. that's what i love about it and the sutter kane myth yeah so is it that one it's like he's a he's an insurance like a jester kind of character who has to, uh, or a private detective kind of insurance guy who has to pr- mm-hmm. find this writer who's disappeared because, of course, the writers got hit after hit and they want to find the guy. They want to force him to keep putting out his books, right? Yeah. 
And this, and he he goes to find the writer. He ends up in the writer's hometown where the writer also sets all of his stories of Hobbes End. And then suddenly it goes off the rails. It's got a noir vibe to it as well because it is this like hardened detective looking for a novelist, like everything. It's got this this interesting noirish tone to it as well. Um, but just does such interesting things. And I love the fact that I still don't understand it completely. Like I understand it. Um, but there are so many things that I'm like, explain the kid. Um, like I just, I want more detail. I would live inside this movie. I love this world so much because it is so haunting and I don't always know what's going on, but I'm just completely destroyed by it. So yeah, and, and it's yeah. the best last film by Carpenter by, by quite a long way. And it, mm-hmm. and to me, this like late masterpiece for him kind of this solidified for me that he is the best horror director. Like I really, I look back through the history of movies and go, yeah, no one did quite the variety that he did. Like, you know, if you can make the fog, which is like a quiet, creepy movie in Halloween, but then you can also make something as wild as the thing, Prince of Darkness, this, they look, they, it's just like, what a filmography, like, you know, some bizarro action movies in between there, here and there, but still, I just, I think this one is the one that like, it was like the cap at the end of that. Yeah. Towards the end of the career. I'm like, this guy is just the best. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. I love this film too. And uh, I have, I, I think I've told you my, I have my signed DVD because my friend, my friend was at a bar in New Zealand and Sam Neill walked in and my friend went, oh my God. So he ran to his, got a taxi, went all the way home, like not even close to the city, came back in and brought, got his In the Mouth of Madness DVD to sign for me. So it's, it's to Elric <laughs> from Sam because my friend James did that. Uh, well, oh, I've met James. Yeah, you've met James. Awesome. And, and, uh, yeah, he did that. I, and, and you know what I said to him when he told me the story? As good a story as that is. I said, why not possession? <laughs> Why didn't you get possession sign? Why'd you get no? But um, yeah, no. It, it looks Sam Neil's crushing it. Good, good, yeah. good list for Sam. Um, do you want to do a quick uh, yeah. just list yours in order? So what we're oh listing in order? You got it. So my number ten: Nightbreed, Deep Rising, um, Whispering Corridors, The Craft, Lake Placid, Event Horizon, California Cube, Jacob's Ladder, and In the Mouth of Madness. Okay, I'll go ten: Nightbreed, nine In the Mouth of Madness, eight Cure, seven Reflecting Skin, six Habit, five Brain Dead, Dead Alive, uh, four The Kingdom, three Body Parts. Yes, you heard it right. Number two Audition, and number one. Candy man. Um, we probably don't want to take because we're already kind of epic, but a couple quick honorable mentions. Yeah, the ones that it pained me to leave off the list. I will say Exorcist Three. I, I totally thought it was gonna be on your list, and that's what made me not top. It's definitely um, if somebody asked me the best ten horror films of that decade, that would be on there. there. The top couple for me would be Misery. Because I think it's just one of the best made, but it's less personal mm-hmm. to me. And Drac- uh, Fra- I think the Bram Stoker, Francis Ford Coppola Dracula is a total masterpiece, mm-hmm. but it's not as personal. That's why I didn't put it on you know, my list. Yeah, um, I had um, a lot of the ones that came out at the top of the 90s that I consider to be really formative for me, like Tremors and Arachnophobia were both really close for me um, because I think that really... F- fermented my love of horror comedies yeah arachnophobia was great because it was a mix uh the relic was one that we we threw around before but i really liked the relic when i was when i first saw it um mine was mimic oh yeah no Um, mimic i I always was one of those ones i wanted to like it more when i was sitting there and i felt like it was missing something but i think there's been a director's cut since then and i've never seen it I, I, i might check that out because i think the studio really messed with that theatrical from memory Mm -hmm. and i always were even when i was watching it's like it felt like something was missing out of this movie and so i I should check it out um the 
Addiction by Ferrera is definitely a favorite of mine. It's just I already had Habit in there. Um, Polanski's Nightgate is actually surprisingly interesting. Uh, I really like that movie. Yeah, it pairs really well with Rosemary's Baby, like, you know, as a, as a kind of theme thematically. Um, I think it goes also along with my love of lit horror, like yeah, horror yeah. about writers, yeah. like Ninth Gate, I'm Madman, um, Secret Window. Investigation I, I could, movies, too, like where, yeah. Yeah, where, where non-detectives, our characters are investigating. Mm-hmm. I always love that, too. Um, and it does feel like people don't talk about that one anymore much. Yeah, a couple more of mine. Um, Stir of Echoes is pretty far up there for me. Uh Like just a really tight little ghost story at a time that was 99 when we weren't seeing a ton of ghosts. It was far more like giant monsters. Um, Cemetery Man from 94. I, I could I totally thought that was going to be like your number one for some reason. I, I don't it wanna. should have been, but I don't associate it with the 90s because I did not see it until I was already living in New York City and working for Fango uh, by the time. So I associate it much more with mid 2000s. But yeah, it's 1994. And so that was definitely one that I was like. Okay, I should have put it on. And then um, Dark Water, Mario Banya's Dark Water. I've talked about a lot, so I was kind of like, you know what? I, I feel like I should do something new, and I swapped it out with Whispering Corridors. Yeah, they're great um, deep cuts, too. But- like Dark Water mm-hmm. is a perfect like 90s deep cut for people. Yeah. Um, I thought Existence would be on your list. Existence is a big one. House on Haunted Hill was yeah. definitely a consideration as well. And then I had two that I will call guilty pleasures. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Obviously. I would say as far as like, I will watch that anytime. I need it's to match yours two. before you move away from that one because I oh, have yeah. a part three that is an exorcist that I would put on my list. And I have a very soft spot that I don't talk nearly enough about. Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I can't, oh, hell yeah. I just like, I know a lot of people like two and two's, two's fun. But She's for cool. some some reason, I've always really enjoyed three, uh, and it's just wild wildness. And I did see a cut once that had the gore put back, and it was so good. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I do like Leatherface. So, and then the other one, um, a film that I have always wanted to remake, um, that I think there is a really fun version of that I love the original so much, Popcorn. Oh yeah, I um, love Popcorn. We talked was, about it pretty early on this show. Yeah, yeah. We I think that it was it one of our um, movie fights with Fade to Black. Oh yeah, with Fade to Black. Yeah. No, Popcorn is one popcorn. that. I rented this repeatedly and it's just such a fun slasher. I loved the approach. I loved that it was meta bringing in B movie. The protagonist is awesome. The killer's cool. There was just, it was just a tight little slasher that I don't think got nearly enough love when it came out. Yeah. And if, and if any of these are, were deep cuts for you or, or from our main list and you watch it and enjoy it, we love when people tag us and write to us telling us they've watched one of these. It's always, a, it's always fun. It, um, or if you're angry, um, that, <laughs> that body parts wasn't my number one. You can write to me about that too. Uh, I always I like those, those ones as well as I watched this movie because Rebecca mentioned it and yeah. it was awful. Yeah. We don't, our tastes are our own we just share yeah. with the group um that's yeah no we're very upfront about that that our, it, it is you just have to if you listen long enough and watch enough you'll start to get a vibe for for whose wrecks like work for you and and when you should stay away you'll get you'll get that vibe <laughs> On that note, I just bought a copy of Evil Dead Trap and started it last night and then suddenly went, I haven't seen this before. I swear to God, I had seen Evil Dead Trap. Like, and I know we've talked you about it. You might have seen part before. two because part two is really okay. different. And you gave away hundreds of copies of part two on DVD at a trivia at once. trivia events. I remember it's somebody so different. literally gave us boxes of it. I think yeah. I've seen part two. I started watching part one last night and was like, I've never fucking seen this. I oh, know. You, you have to make sure you're, make sure you're really awake when you get. Because you, I think you'll really dig because it it goes really 
like it like it's in the tweet it goes very italian it goes very suspiria and and i wasn't expecting that when i rewatched it um because i'd forgotten a lot about it and i loved it it really was one of my favorite kind of rewatches of last year so glad well, you got that tune in for our patreon show yeah, next, Deep Deep Cuts Cut, yeah. next week where i will be talking about evil dead cut and uh also for this month's um on our patreon we're going to be doing a cheat sheet of all of the 90s super deep cuts that we did not include on this list. Things like Kolobos um, will not be on there, but that's one that I, I would think to include where it's like, you know, this feels like my little eye big brother saw before those films came about in a really small indie sense. Um, so yeah, we'll be putting that out as well. Yeah. And it's a good place to support the show or listen to a whole other episodes, a couple yeah, episodes yeah. a month. But yeah, anyway, that was fun to finally get our trip into the nineties. Sure. We weren't covering a lot of like uh, teen slashers like we might have from our previous episode, but there's hopefully some good movies in there for people. And the answer to your favorite one of the marijuana farmers from ticks is always Clint Howard. Always. I thought he's the only one. <laughs> did ticks not make the list? What is going on here? You know, are, you lying? are you just lying? Are you creating a new persona? No, I, I have always been a huge champion of ticks. Uh-huh. That does not necessarily mean that it is like, um, you know, we become known for these films <laughs> in a sense. It like, is weird. Yeah. I'm now known as the person who convinced like half of, you know, the horror world to watch Slugs. Yeah. Um, is Slugs my favorite film ever? No, but I fucking love it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's always kind of, you know, Ticks. I love Ticks. I think it's an absolutely brilliant, fun movie that does not get enough attention, but it follows into my 90s giant creatures. And if I'm looking for the ones of the 90s giant creatures that I really love, Deep Rising and Lake Placid go on that list. So. And I get tagged in any any post about the pit uh, from Canada. Somebody will tag me about Teddy. Or <laughs> I love that you're known for the I'm, pit. I'm the pit. I'll be a pit guy. Uh, well, no, I'd say your body parts now. So welcome hopefully, to I'm happy parts. to I'm happy to move into Jeff Fahey's world. <laughs> I should have pulled out Lawnmower Man while we're at it. You and, should and have sketch really. artist. Sketch artist is a good one too. I am a god. Oh um, my! Oh my! All right. Well, we better wrap. Anyway, that's the '90s, kids. We will. We will do other decades soon. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 